The UK Investor Magazine podcast is brought to you in association with Oanda, the broker of choice for traders who want a smarter way to trade. Trade with Oanda and get one year's subscription to TradingView Pro. 76.6% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. For today's podcast, we're going to be delving into a London-listed investment trust in the Temple Bar Investment Trust. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by Ian Lance, who is the Portfolio Manager at Temple Bar. So Ian, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Regular listeners to the podcast will be aware that Ian presented at the UK Investor Magazine Virtual Investment Trust Conference uh, about a month ago now. So if you want to go and have a look at that presentation, do check that out. That's on the video section of the UK Investor Magazine website. So we're going to be discussing how things have changed uh, since then, uh, looking at the portfolio, uh, as well as going into the larger themes across the Temple Bar Investment Trust portfolio. And we're going to be discussing the value investing. We'll be looking at some key statistics behind value investments. But before we do that, Ian, would you be able to give us a bit of introduction to yourself, please, and uh, and the portfolio and trust? Yes, certainly. Um, so Temple Bar is uh, it's an investment trust, uh, which is uh, it's nearly 100 years old now, actually. Um, and uh, I guess, like a lot of investment trusts, its objective is to provide people, investors with a reasonable income to grow that income and also to give them a, uh, a capital return. Um, which is sort of fairly generic, isn't it? I think I think what it's it's, it's probably well known for, and actually these days it's increasingly rare. It's is its uh, value investing style. This is something that has been a characteristic of um, Temple Bar since before we took the management over. Um, and 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 on that note, um, the, the the trust is actually run by myself uh, and my co-manager Nick Purvis. Nick and I have been working together since two thousand and seven. We have both been running money uh, now for, believe it or not, about thirty-five years actually. Um, and again, we are we we're, we're best known for our for our value investing style, uh, and and make you know we we I'm sure we can get into that what exactly that means later on. Yes, we we will do. Actually, I think Ian, that's probably a good place to to start with. Yeah. You know, exploring. You know what. Um, you know, why, why are you value investors? And, you know, what is the definition? Obviously, it's a, it's a style that people speak about, but it'd be good to get your perspective on, on value and how you see yourself as a, as a value investor. Yeah, sure. Um, so the reason we're value investors, and I, I, this is going to make people laugh, <laughs> um, is that we, we, we like to make our lives easy. Um, and when I say that, I, what I mean is um, that there's, there's an awful lot of empirical evidence that suggests that, Value investing is one of three factors that actually delivers an excess return um, over time. Um, we have used in the past, we've used a study from a, an American firm called Research Affiliates. Uh, I just recently actually produced a, uh, a blog um, in which I looked at the Credit Suisse Investment Returns Handbook. The, the, all, all of these different studies all point to the same broad conclusions, which is that there are three factors which deliver excess returns over time. One of those um, is value investing. 
One of them is momentum investing, and and one of them is size. Interestingly, these all they also all suggest that quality investing and growth investing do not produce an excess return over time. And the reason I said that will make people smile is that I know a lot of people will be familiar will be familiar with the fact that over the last decade, actually, quality and growth has been a great place to be. Interestingly, that, that the last ten years have been the exception, uh, and again on the on the uh, on, on the uh, presentation that you referenced earlier on, uh, we actually had a slide there in which we showed value versus growth by decade over the last 110 years. There have only been two decades out of that 110 year time period in which growth has beaten value. And it was the 1920s and the 2010s. Now, of course, the relevance of that, there, there are two things to know. Obviously, the 2010s is, is, is you know, is people's lived experience, isn't it? People know that, uh, that that's what people seem, have seen in the last decade. But I guess the second point that I would note um, is that there are similarities between those two decades, aren't they? The roaring 20s and what we saw in the 2010s. You know, we have we have very low interest rates in both of those periods and sort of remarkable uh, asset bubbles in, in both of those decades. And I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that growth beating value is the exception, not the norm. Um, so that's so that's kind of why we're value investors. What 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 does value investing mean to us? Very simply, we believe that uh, most investors, unfortunately, tend to have um, behavioural traits which cause them to overreact to news flow, which 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 frankly doesn't really change the long run intrinsic value of a business. Um, so when when things are going well, people tend to extrapolate that forward, and they and they end up overpaying for things. And then they do the opposite at the bottom to when things are going badly. And that could be an economy, it could be an industry, or it could be a company. People get very, very depressed about it. and They just can't see how things are going to get any better. And, and the reality is that in most cases, actually, the, the, you know, the long run intrinsic value of the business is not really changed that much by, you know, even a, a sort of couple of year downturn in earnings. And yet share prices move by much, much more than that. And so what that means for a value investor is that it means that share prices will move around by a lot more than is warranted um, in the, the intrinsic value of the business. And that that prevents that presents an opportunity to you as a value investor. So if you can take a contrarian and long-term view and, and think about where a profit's going on a five-year basis and value a business off that, you will often find that people's short-term overreaction um, is presenting you with an opportunity because it's driven the share price down to significantly less than its intrinsic value, and, and I guess just to just just to, just to finish there, if we can find uh, a business where we think the share price is trading at roughly half of what we think it's worth, then that that is normally a um, uh, a, a good opportunity for the portfolio. And we will be speaking a little bit later on in the in the podcast about some of those opportunities that you're that you're looking at, and of we course uh, included in the. Uh, in the portfolio, but I just want to stay with the, the concept of value investing at the moment and, and sort of look at, you know, where we are with it, because you obviously mentioned over the last 10 years, it was outperformed by growth. And you listed a number of reasons why that, uh, why that was. I mean, do you feel when you look at value investing and, and people being a, a value investor or, or funds classing their uh, their mandate and their uh, way that they manage their fund as as value. I mean, is this something that you know over the last ten years diminished to some extent, purely because what's been happening out there in the markets? I mean, if you look at the S and P five hundred 
for example, as well as the NASDAQ, you, you've got 10 companies that are really leading these broad indices. And, and you know, that would then translate through to, to global indices as well. So if you're not in these growth stocks, I haven't been in these growth stocks for the last 10 years, you, you would have underperformed the market. I mean, from your perspective, Ian, at what point does it start to shift and people start to look at value and they start to pay more attention to to multiples, earnings multiples, revenue multiples, and saying actually there's value here, um, as opposed to just looking at stocks that um, you know have had some top line growth, but you, you just look at these companies for for what's happening there um, on the on the numbers side, as opposed to the valuation. You know, from your perspective, when does it shift over again, or, or has it already shifted, or are we in the process of it shifting to a case where people start to pay more attention? to the value valuation as opposed to investing in growth at, at any cost. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it started, actually, Jonathan. Um, and I mean, you know, let, let's, uh, let's, let, let's give you a couple of numbers to start with. So I, I mentioned that we took Temple Bar over a couple of years ago. Uh, since we took it over, so this was the end of October 2020, the fund is up 85% versus the all share 45%. So, you know, there, there's a little data point to suggest that actually maybe things have started to swing back in the direction of, of value um, quite aggressively. What, 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 you know, what, what occurred over that time period? Um, there, there are a couple of things, aren't there? Number one is we had that, we had that just classic overreaction as we went into uh, the pandemic and lockdown. Uh, so, so, so people just became, you know, very, very negative about anything that was uh, cyclically oriented. Uh, you know, to, what, to, to, to give you an example, the, believe it or not, the share price of NatWest Group got to a lower point in 2020 it, during the pandemic than it did in 2008 when the UK government stepped in and bailed it out. That, that, that is how depressed people were. So, so your starting point was very, very low share prices, and I think. As soon as as soon as it became clear that the you know the pandemic was going to be a temporary, not a permanent thing, that you you had a big rebound. But the, but the other thing that's happened over that time period is that the the monetary conditions, the fiscal and monetary conditions that have existed over the last decade, and which I think were so positive for quality and growth, um, look like they've come to an end. So you know we had we had a decade, didn't we? Of um, Actually, we've had 40 years, but in particular a decade of declining interest rates and money printing. And in that sort of environment, um, at, you know, asset, cl- asset classes just went crazy and you just basically needed to be in almost the most speculative areas of the market to, to, to get the greatest returns. That clearly came to an end, didn't it? it just, just over a year ago when, um, contrary to what the central banks had said, uh, inflation turned out not to be transitory. They started to put interest rates up. Um, and I think people recognised that um, there was potentially a regime change underway, and and this is normally how these periods end. Uh, you know, the, the, these sort of boom periods don't go on forever, and it, it feels to us like the the the, the background has has very much shifted. So we've gone from a situation, haven't we, where we had you know negative or zero or negative interest rates a couple of years ago to one where you know you can now get close to five percent on a on a two-year treasury and that that is a very very different background and i think in that sort of environment all of a sudden people are focusing back on fundamentals they're focusing back on uh valuations and the good the good thing for us is that actually there aren't too many of us left in the market who actually <laughs> yeah. do that 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 sort of stuff because most people threw the towel in over the last decade and and have shifted to becoming uh quality or or, or growth investors 
I mean, I think it's an interesting point actually that uh, sort of might touch on quickly, Ian. You know, obviously you're you're based here in in the UK, and people will compare you to the FTSE 100 and and, uh, and UK indices. That's right. I mean, has that been a godsend for you? Because if if you know over the last ten years you were trying to go up against the S and P 500 or the Nasdaq, taking a value. Uh, approach that would have been a tough job wouldn't it? it it very it very much would have yeah you're right the you know not not only did that market go up a lot more than the uk market um the the returns were focused in a very small number of stocks weren't they a very small number of increasingly large stocks the you know the the, the, the fang stocks and a few others and yeah I, you know I, I i know a few global value investors who had an absolutely torrid time um conversely they funnily enough actually last year was an amazing year for most of them because because frankly just not owning any of those stocks you know gave gave you an incredible tailwind um but you know you're you're absolutely right i I probably would have rather been a a uk investor than a global value investor over the last decade indeed right now let's get into the portfolio and where you you see opportunities so i mean let's start off you know quite quite broadly of course it's uk um, but I mean, are there any particular sectors that you you like at the moment, or I think it's probably a second part to this question. You know, about the portfolio, are you sort of out and out, bottom up, um, stock specific, or, or do you take the macro approach and, and look at uh, you know sectors and and how things are moving there? Uh, so, okay, to answer the second question first, yes, um, yeah, we are we 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 are bottom up. Now we look at. We look at things like business cycles and capital cycles, and I'll, I'll come on and talk about that a little bit more in a second. Um, but no, we 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 think that it's, it's a fool's errand to try to forecast the macro uh, when you know when you consider that the Federal Reserve has uh, I don't know in excess of a hundred economics PhDs and seems to be consistently wrong on macroeconomic forecasts. You know, the, the people need to be realistic with themselves that macroeconomic forecasting is extremely difficult. And, and not only that, but you you you've got to you've you've got to get your macroeconomic uh, forecasts right, and you've got to get them right quicker than other people, because you've got to get them right before they've been priced in to to, to market. So, what we tend to do is we we tend to actually um, think about macroeconomics as a we we exploit other people's overreaction to macroeconomics. So, the, you know the, the the last few years we've already mentioned. Um, uh, the, the the pandemic when you know anything anything that was remotely cyclical just just got sold down to crazily low valuations and we saw that as an opportunity um and and we had a similar sort of thing happened when the uh when the war in ukraine started so so that's so we we we're definitely um we're definitely bottom up not top down um we do though when it comes to certain industries we 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 employ what's called a capital cycle approach, and I think that's probably it's probably best if I um, if I give you an example of that. And so the yes, the, 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 the sector that I'm going to talk about is the energy sector because that's that's twenty percent of the trust at the moment, so it's the biggest sector in the trust. Um, and there are the the, the 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 capital cycle thesis is that basically you have these um, you have these industries which are very capital intensive and they tend to have very long um lead times on investment uh in the in the industry so you know in the case of uh, in the case of oil and gas you know you, you obviously you can't just create a new oil well overnight um they, these, these these things take years and 
there there was we've had this position for maybe three or so years and there were two elements to it um the first one is that for you know for 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 um maybe very positive reasons lots of investors decided about three or four years ago that um they 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 hated the energy sector for ESG reasons and they just emptied their portfolios um of of, of energy stocks and of course that depressed the valuations of these companies and it meant that they were trading at very, very low valuations relative to their long run average. But but what's more interesting was what was going on within the industry at the same time, which is that the 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 industry, like lots of these industry, goes through sort of boom bust periods. And the, the last boom, you have to go back to about 2013. Um, and of course, you know, that you've got overinvestment, um, the commodity prices in general went down quite a lot, and then that certainly uh, impacted the energy industry. But at the same time, the you know, lots of investors um, were employing those ESG uh, ideas in the way that they communicated with the companies. And they basic, basically told the companies that they should stop investing uh, in anything related to fossil fuels. And the, the companies certainly took that to heart because, um, believe it or not, um, upstream energy capex adjusted for GDP is 70% lower today than it was um, 10 years ago. Which is just, you know, just a staggering statistic. How much capital has come out of that industry? And in this sort of industry, you can't cut capital expenditure by, by that amount and expect production levels to remain at the same levels that they were at, you know, ten years ago. And of course, that that you know that hasn't happened, and production has not really grown. People thought demand. I think I think they thought demand was going to collapse because we're all going to be driving around in uh, EVs and so on and so forth. Again, that's just not going to happen overnight. And 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 of course, demand for fossil fuels continues to grow, fueled by the growth in uh, in, in places like China and India and Africa. Um, so you've got the situation where you you eventually end up ended up with a tightness in supply and demand in the energy industry, and that that's what drove up um, oil and gas prices. And it's worth saying that. This was happening uh, before the, the the situation with Ukraine. You know, when when that happened, it, it, you know, it undoubtedly um, pure, poured fuel on the fire. But you had energy prices going up very significantly, and the, the 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 cash flows of these companies are very geared to commodity prices. And um, you know, they reacted, and and the cash flows of these companies went up very very significantly. And I suppose just 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 to finish off. Um, Ordinarily, what you would expect in 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 this uh, in this sort of capital cycle is that that you know the, the solution that people sometimes say don't they the solution to high high prices is 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 high prices. And what they mean by that is it should encourage investment. That's certainly what should happen here. When the oil price was over a hundred dollars, you should have seen companies' capital expenditure started to go up very very significantly, and it hasn't because uh, both investors and politicians have continued to tell them that. You know they are the spawn of Satan, and and they mustn't invest, uh, and they have they've not invested. So and and then and then we've seen things like windfall taxes and all all sorts of other crazy things. Um, and so capital expenditure hasn't gone up, and what therefore what you've seen is um, free cash flow has just reigned at very very elevated levels. The companies are because they're not investing, they are responding by uh, increasing dividends, buying back their shares. Uh, and yet they are still trading at, at, at very, very low valuations. So that's that's kind of um, in, in a nutshell our thesis on the energy sector. So, I mean, the, the cash generation of those businesses is, is tremendous. But interesting point in you mentioned there that of the portfolio, is it 20%? Yes. Right, oil, yeah. oil or gas. 
So do you think, and this is making comparisons to the to the composition of the, the London's leading index, of course, the FTSE 100, would you be as heavily invested, do you feel, within that sector if there wasn't such a strong weighting in the FTSE 100 towards natural resources? Do you, do you feel the strong weighting towards, of course, the two oil companies, BP and Shell, and then, and then the miners makes that index? I mean, particularly today, if you're looking at what's happening to the FTSE 100, it's, it's, it's the miners and the oil companies lifting that index. Do, do you feel that if that index wasn't as heavily weighted towards natural resources and oil and gas, that you would be as heavily weighted at 20% of the portfolio in uh, in that sector? Yes, I do. I do. We, 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 we're pretty index agnostic, actually. Um, it's, it's, I, I didn't mention earlier on, we run we run a very focused portfolio, so we're quite happy to run a portfolio with sort of you know 20, 25 stocks in it. Uh, we are very happy to take big index bets in both directions. So, if we, you know, if there are big shares or big sectors which we think are uh, expensive, we're quite happy to have absolutely nothing in them, um, even if they're a big part of the index. So, so, so even even if I was running a global value portfolio, I, I suspect energy would probably represent that sort of weight um, in it because it, it it remains, I think, one of our, you know, one of the one of our uh, most positive areas uh, because because the valuations are still still so low. I mean. Uh, I, I'm sitting here looking at the valuations of our top 10 holdings, BP, Shell, uh, and Total trade on six times earnings. And, you know, they've got dividend yields of sort of 4% or so, but they're, they're, they're buying back huge, huge amounts of stock as well. So you, you, you've got very low valuations. And at the moment, the fundamentals for the industry remain very positive because, um, because everyone continues to tell these companies not to invest um and 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 frankly if we, if we don't do something to increase supply it's it's kind of hard to see how um energy prices are going to come back down yeah and that's uh that's a win-win situation for those companies so going back to that to the broader market ian when you when you're looking at you know the foot the footsie 100 footsie 350 it's been considered cheap for for, for some time and you know for you as a, a value investor an ideal place to be looking for for opportunities, and of course, it's a, it's a relative term uh, that the value and cheapness its comparisons to to European indices, comparisons to U.S. indices. Yeah. When do you see, and, and what may be the catalyst for the UK market to not be as cheap or, or offer as good value compared to these overseas markets? Yeah, this is this this is a difficult one, but I suppose just to start on that point of of, of relative and absolute cheapness, we we think the UK is is relatively cheap. So we have a chart that looks at um, the valuation of the UK versus uh, the world stock market, and it goes it actually goes back fifty years. So it goes back to the nineteen seventies. And you know, pe- pe- people will say, oh, well, the the UK should trade at a discount uh, because of its sector composition, and and actually, I'd agree with that. Um, but interestingly, the average discount. For the UK over the MSCI world has been about 17% for the last 50 years. And today we're at about a 40% discount. So we're we're a lot, lot cheaper um, than the than the long run average. But we would also say that lots of these shares look uh cheap on an absolute basis as well. You know, we, we, we can kind of talk about some of these companies later on, but you know, we we think that sort of the average P across the portfolio is probably about nine times. It's pretty much the cheapest that we've seen in our investing careers, which goes back 35 years. 
so we we, we think the uk is both is both absolutely and relatively cheap to, to to answer your second question about sort of you know what 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 might the catalyst be that's a really difficult one because um so many investors these days unfortunately um and, and i'm talking actually about sort of institutional investors and you know big wholesale investors they 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 actually have a um a market cap mindset and what i mean by that is that when they look at where they're going to allocate to equities they'll they'll look at the us market which is currently just shy of 70% of msci world and then they'll look at the uk and the uk is about 5% and you know there's just no way in the world they're going to have sort of half their money in the uk and in actual fact what's been going on is is actually the opposite i'm sure you've you kind of discussed this before there've been big outflows from the uk and, and so you've also almost had this kind of self-perpetuating thing whereby big institutional investors at pension funds and so on and so forth have been selling down the UK, depressing the valuation of it, depressing the weighting, and, and vice versa. That money's been going into global, it's been going into the US. And it's not it's not easy to see what what reverses that unless, you know, all of a sudden some of some of these institutions turn around and actually think, think to themselves, this is crazy. The the US is probably sort of nearly as expensive as it's been in its history the uk is nearly as cheap as it's been in its history and we've got five in the cheap one and 70 in the expensive one um that's, that's probably not going to happen so what so so what you know what what can happen i think these things basically can just form on their own and what i mean what i mean by that is if you've got a stock um i don't know with a free cash flow yield of let's call it 12 percent and it's paying out um let's say let's call it a sort of five percent five or six percent dividend a year with that that that's getting you to nearly your total equity return on its own isn't it so you only need you know a little bit of income growth out of that um to to, to give you a reasonable return and we're making the assumption here that these things don't derate forever and then you know it's 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 not beyond the realms of possibility that actually you you do get a little bit of a re-rating over time, and 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 of course that that then you know exaggerates your return. So it it might just be that some of these companies, um, that's how you get your return. It's you, you you don't get your return because all of a sudden lots of investors start throwing money at the UK market. You just get it because um, they they can kind of sit there and compound. Uh, Eight, nine, ten percent per annum, given the start low starting valuations, the fact that they are paying you a dividend, the fact they're growing their income, the fact that they're buying back very, very cheap stocks. Um, I think I think one final thing that I'll mention is that um, it's we still think it's possible that you'll see takeovers because number one, the valuations of lots of these companies are very cheap, as we've just discussed, and of course, number two, um, if you're a let's say a US buyer, you're sitting there looking at uk assets in a in quite a cheap currency at the moment as well um so it, it wouldn't surprise us to see um see some sort of corporate activity going on as well so just to, we'll uh just finish on that point there before moving on to look at the individual companies in the portfolio that notion that there's value potential value there because it could be takeovers um coming in uh for for uk listed companies yeah I mean, what we're seeing at the moment is, you know, the likes of Arm choosing to list in the United States. There's CRH that's been looking at moving over their, their listing to the United States as well. You know, if we see a trend of that where companies are being seen as good value and being taken over, and these, these, are, these are good quality companies. Morrison's, for example, is one that's been taken over recently and been removed from 
the indices. You know, if, if that happens, are you concerned that we aren't seeing the number of companies coming in, high quality companies coming in to replace those? And do you think over time that that's a bit of a negative for UK markets? In in, in the very very long term, yes. I mean, uh, I suppose if you if you if you put the question. Uh, can, can we produce a portfolio at the moment that's reasonably diversified and very undervalued? The answer is yes, we can. But that, but that's because we run quite sort of quite focused money. Um, yeah, I, I have to say it's something that I wouldn't, I wouldn't particularly want to see is is lots and lots of companies beginning to just disappear off the UK market either because they shift their listing, or because they they just get taken over. And actually, it is a slight concern of ours, and it would be a nice problem to have, wouldn't it? Would be that. Some of these companies are so cheap that people could come in and offer you a sort of thirty or forty percent premium, um, and, and we'd get taken out. And in actual fact, we would be sitting there saying, "Hang on a second, we thought there was one hundred percent upside." <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yes. nice so, problem to have. A indeed, nice a nice problem. Of course, the price that it's done uh, will dictate those returns. So we're going to move on now, Ian, and we're going to look at the individual companies. So th- th- this is actually quite an, an interesting one to start with because it's uh, one that. One of the attendees from the recent presentation that we did brought up and it's ids yeah. the, the old royal mail and you know there was a question there that of course you're looking for value and you know the integral part of value investing is you're looking for companies that aren't doing as well hence there's some value there um yes. you know it's, it's unloved by uh the market so again two-part question here uh you know why IDS? And second point, you know this this is a company that's been, uh, you know, if you're looking at the news, it's been pretty bad recently. Uh, you know, at which point do you, do you look at this company and say, right, we're in it because it offers value? Um, but at what point do you say, well, not enough's enough. There's value there, but the, the news has been quite bad, and it's not going the way that we want. You know, for a company like IDS, you know, where, when do you throw in a towel? Yeah. So. Um... One of the things that we often find is that um, investors tend to put a lot of focus on uh, bits of the business that they know and uh, bits of the business which are attracting headlines. And sometimes they don't even know that there are other bits of the business. Um, And this would be a case with um, IDS and Royal Mail. So, you know, obviously people know that uh, that they, 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 they... Obviously, they get the letters delivered every day, so they know they know the Royal Mail. They'll they'll read about the headlines about the strikes and so on and so forth. They they might not even know that this IDS basically has two businesses. It's got the UK business. We'll come back to that in a second. But it's got a, a European logistics business called GLS. It doesn't even do letters. All it does is parcels. Now, parcels is in a is it basically in a structural growth um, situation at the moment because we're all you know shopping online more and more and and therefore home delivery is isn't isn't on a growth path at the moment and gls has been a huge beneficiary from that so it's you know it's it's seen very very um consistent uh revenue growth it makes a margin of about eight percent it's going to make it's going to make profits or made profits last year actually about 350 million pounds um so you know what what, what might that business be worth well let, let's let's stick it on 10 times and i would say 10 times is a very miserly multiple to use that that would be worth about three pounds 50 a share on its own um again as an aside the the uk business has a, a load of surplus property so this would be sort of i suppose depots and things like that that are no longer used that they could sell off that that's worth about another one pound 50 a share 
So we add those two bits together. Uh, we're at five pounds a share. The share price in the market today is two pounds thirty. So the market is putting a very big negative value on the UK business um, today. You know, you, I'm, I'm sure lots of listeners will have heard the expression margin of safety. This is the one something that um, this is something that value investors will often go on about is, is buying something with a margin of safety. In other words, buying something whereby even if something goes wrong, you know, you're, you're, you're buying it so cheaply that you've, you've got an in, inbuilt margin of safety. We, 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 we think that would apply here because there's so much value in the two bits that I've just spoken about. Even if the, you know, the unions persist in, in, in what they're doing at the moment, um, it, you know, we think the shares are very, very cheap. Um, I guess we, if we turn to the UK business, it's worth saying that, you know, despite the best efforts of the unions, um, this this is still a business which last year had about 10 billion of sales. Obviously, it's not making money at the moment, but if ever they got some sort of agreement on productivity improvements, it could. It could make a margin of, we, we think, about 5%. That would be about 500 million quid. And you, and you can kind of see the potential value that there could be in the UK side. So, um you know that that's not going to happen overnight, but we we would recognise the sort of I suppose the option value there if you want to think about it like that. You know, still still has the number one market share in parcels um, in in the UK again, to, despite the best efforts of the union over the last six months or so. So the, the, an, an awful lot of upside. And I suppose one one final thing I'll say is because we we run quite a lot of money and we we we're quite focused investors, we end up with quite large holdings. In companies, and, and and here we own <coughs> about ten percent of uh, of IDS, and we are the second largest investor uh, behind a chap called Daniel Krutinsky, who's a Czechoslovakian billionaire who runs a family office called Vesa, and he owns twenty five percent of it. So between the two of us, we own thirty five percent of the business, and 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 that's just relevant because it means that we have quite a lot of um, sway uh, in in terms of sort of value realization, etc. So hopefully that gives you a feel, I suppose, for you know what we're seeing, you know, despite the the sort of torrent of uh, of, of negative news flow at the moment. So IDS is an interesting one. Looking back over the last five years, you know, we're, we're down nearer to, to two pounds at the moment, but it's you know it's, it's been up to to, to six pounds um, yeah. in, in yeah. very recent times. So, I mean, how long have you been holding on to to IDS? Is this one that you've been adding to recently? Have you have you held it throughout that five year period that I've got here? Uh, on on the chart, and or is it something that you add and take away from? I mean, how do how do you treat a stock like this, which is quite clearly over this period trading in a in a range towards the 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 bottom of that range now? Very crudely, just looking at the at the chart, is it something that you'll look to to modify the position in? Um, and and, and you know, when, when did you first get into it? So we first got into it again during COVID when I was when I was talking earlier on about. Um... <clears throat> That sort of enormous pessimism that there was in 2020 that basically threw up some, you know, some uh, some some real bargains. And IDS actually got it got close to a pound, um, which is just extraordinary. When you, you go go back to what I was saying about the value of um, GLS, you think that you know the market cap of the entire group was about 1.2 billion in the in the summer of 2020. So it was it was it was you know very very cheap. The 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 thing that actually the market really had got wrong. Is that the market hadn't really thought about what lockdown would do for this business because actually lockdown was an was an enormous benefit because we we're all at home so we we're all shopping online, and so actually volumes absolutely went through the roof during that period. So that's kind of what drove the share price up to 
six pounds. It, it, it was that, you know, it was the fact that business materially improved through that sort of um, through that lockdown period. Um, and yeah, to answer your question, yes, we, we you know, it basically became a very large part of the portfolio because we bought it well. We bought it in, we bought it during that sort of lull in 2020. Eventually, it became nearly nine percent of the portfolio, and we and we took some money out of it at that point of time, um, really for risk control reasons. You know, we, we, that, was, that was probably too much to have in a in, in a single stock. Yeah. And yes, we yeah we you know we've been adding to it again over the last year or so um, uh, as as the share price has, has has been more beaten up. We are we're not we don't traditionally top and tail things. We um, we we have very very low turnover. Uh, our, our turnover is literally uh, about ten percent, and there are there, there can be years in which we do nothing. When we, we write our report at the end of the year, and the, the activity <laughs> page is yeah. is kind of inten- intentionally left blank. Yeah. Um, but it, but so so, so we, we you know we're we're not the sort of people who will trade around things. But we when things are trading materially above or below our estimate of intrinsic value, that's that's kind of what then leads to action within the portfolio fantastic so Ian just to finish off with now what, what are some of the the big I mean, you obviously just said that you don't make a lot of changes to the to the portfolio but uh you know what what are things that you've been tweaking or, or maybe looking at, at tweaking over the last three to six months if anything yeah not an awful lot actually I mean I, we <laughs> we fun, fun enough in the I suppose it was it was the second half of last year, wasn't it? Investors became quite gloomy about um, interest rates going up, uh, energy prices going up, you know, a recession, and then of course we had the uh, the mini budget and all that sort of stuff. And, and and actually, some of the cyclicals got again very beaten up, and we and we you know we added to a few of those. So some of our retailers, like uh, we, we own Marks and Spencers, uh, we I've already mentioned um, IDS. Um, and another area that is a big part of the portfolio is banks, and of course, that I think that's quite topical at the moment. Um, our our view is that what is going on in the US at the moment is is not a rerun of uh, of two thousand and eight, um, and yet investors reacted almost as if it was. You know, we we saw the share prices of things like NatWest, Barclays, Standard Chartered, Markdown. Very, very aggressively, um, and, and when you think about it, actually, there was very, very little crossover between what was going on at Silicon Valley Bank and what's going on at these banks, and 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 I, I think for lots of people, two thousand and eight was such a such a sort of terrifying experience. They've almost just put a line through the sector, and and just decided that they'll never invest in banks again. Um, and again, that means that you get very, very low valuations. I mean, Barclays is is oh, it's recovered a little bit, but a few weeks ago it was down onto four times earnings, and a, and a, about a seven percent dividend yield um, j- just a few weeks ago. You know, in the middle of uh, what was going on with Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and and, and so on and so forth. Um, so we we think at those sorts of valuations, um, the banks are attractive, and we think they're significantly better businesses than they were. Back in two thousand and eight, uh, the management teams are different. Loan books are different. All the all the sort of financial ratios are much much better than they were back then. Um, so that that's another area that you know we're we're still quite positive on. So just, just that is an, it's an interesting sector, of course, the banks. I mean, when you look at the banks on the valuation, you know, since the 
the financial crisis, these these banks haven't really got back above trading one times the the, the book value. No. Um, whereas you, you look in the United States, then they, you know they trade many multiples off in in some circumstances. You know, is this something that you think could change, or is this something that's just you know going back to that point that you made there about the financial crisis that it's just built into the psyche of investors and UK investors that are looking at the banks that they just don't have that confidence to take them you know, to, to a premium of, of book value? Or, or do you still think that there's you know, some questions to be asked about what the, the assets of these banks are? Um, no, no, I don't actually. I, th- I, I think it is. I think it's in the psyche of a lot of investors. A lot of people have just put a line through the sector. And you, but you're, you're absolutely right. You know, some of these banks are trading at half tangible book. And at the same time, the management teams are coming out and saying, you know, we're expecting to make 12, 13, 14% in the case of NatWest <coughs> return on equity and there's just no way that they should be trading on sort of half book and making those sorts of returns now what you know of course the one the, the the right thing for the companies to do in that sort of situation is just buy back their stock isn't it and that's exactly what people like NatWest have been doing and then going back to my earlier point about um corporate activity um in the last few months we've seen a couple of bid rumors for standard chartered haven't we? And again, that just doesn't that doesn't surprise us. You know, Standard Chartered has got a, a really excellent um, portfolio of businesses in sort of fast growing emerging markets. And if you're and, and is trading at half book, if you know if you're a big American bank trading at, uh, at sort of multiples of book, um, and and you want to buy a sort of a footprint into fast growing emerging markets, Standard Chartered looks to me like a sort of obvious way to do that given the the valuation that it's trading on. And, and as I say, we you know we we have had a a couple of big spikes up in the share prices on on rumours of uh, of takeovers. Indeed, indeed, and that's going to be an interesting story, I think, Ian, to to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, if these valuations do keep down at these levels, uh, I think uh, at some point in the future we'll start to see more takeover talk coming through, and that's always uh, that's always good. So, Ian, thank you much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. And just as a, a final note to listeners, do check out the video section on the UK Investor Magazine website because some of the, the points that Ian made there are very well illustrated on the slides. So, Ian, once more, thank you very much. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. This podcast was presented by Oanda, Trading View's most popular broker. Trade with Oanda and get one year subscription to Trading View Pro. of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. You should consider whether you understand how CFDs work and whether you can afford to take the high risk of losing your money. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.